I own five different hammers, everything from a little bitty one for little tiny nails to a giant sledgehammer, which ironically is in my car right now, for destroying things. Usually you size the hammer to the job. We're going to do one little verse today, like a little nail, or we're going to use a sledgehammer, and we're going to drive that thing in so far that it'll never come out. And so that's my hope for us this morning. Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father, we come to you now to open the word of God, and we need these truths nailed deeply into our hearts so that they are part of us. We live them, we breathe them, we speak them. Lord, I pray that would be the outcome of our time in the word this day for these men. We pray in Christ's name, amen. It was in uh, 1990, and some of you guys know this story, but the head football coach for the University of Colorado and his friend hatched an idea to rejuvenate professing Christian men with some sort of spiritual infusion of inspiration. And so they planned a team just to get together and talk about this. And eventually, over the course of a couple of years, in 1993, Bill McCartney and Dave Wardell gave birth to uh, the Promise Keepers Ministry. Uh, the entire premise was that for men, Christian growth begins by making promises. And the movement was based on seven promises that men should make good promises, such as honoring Christ through worship, honoring Christ through the word, pursuing vital relationships with other men, practicing moral and ethical purity, supporting the mission of the local church, and, and some other promises as well. And for quite a number of years, rallies and conferences were held all over the country, drawing 50,000 men plus routinely to these events. They were filled with emotion, they were filled with determination, they were filled with men supporting men, and on the surface it almost seemed like a revival was happening in our nation, in the lives of men around the country, and, and perhaps there was certainly a sense of spiritual renewal that, that happened, but the Promise Keepers movement had several fatal flaws. First of all, they aligned themselves immediately as charismatic and even among the highest leadership, they claimed direct revelation from God. Uh, Bill McCartney himself claims that God spoke to him to tell him to start Promise Keepers. The second fatal flaw, they had a unity-at-all-costs philosophy that ignored sound doctrine. They looked the other way when a, a variety of definitions of the gospel were presented at their conference. They were ecumenical in nature in that as long as you said you're a Christian— then you belong. They accepted different Gospels, even including Roman Catholicism. Third fatal flaw they had, they, they said they partnered with local churches. They even made one of their promises that, that men should go and support their local church. But in reality, what they did was they used local churches just to fill arenas and stadiums in order to present the so-called real answer to spiritual weakness and immaturity as men gathering together to use external accountability as the sole source to motivate men to obey Christ. In other words, it wasn't just that men were gathering with men like we are today as a tool to help mature Christian men, but it was the way to grow. It was the means. And the local church 
was in reality viewed as something you sort of put up with until the next rally came to town where you could get your emotion kind of hyped up again. And so you went for a mountaintop experience and you put up with your local church and then you went back. There's a fourth fatal flaw they had. They promoted easy believism. They were big on the so-called sinner's prayer that salvation in Christ occurs if only a man would recite words that are fed to him. That's found no place in Scripture. Every rally featured a guaranteed hundreds and hundreds of men purporting to get saved, and certainly some of them did, but that's despite the sinner's prayer, not because of it. The Holy Spirit saves. The fifth fatal flaw they had, they became obsessed with trying to end racism as the goal of the Christian man and the goal of the church. The leadership decided that the primary focus of the rallies was to be to end racism. And I was there at the very beginning of that part of it because my dad took me and my brother to a Promise Keepers rally, 55,000 men plus. The only problem was it was at an outdoor stadium and it rained. And so we got wet for a while and we, we hunkered down and eventually the rain cleared. And then one of the leaders came and, and told us that God had told the leadership that met up in the press box of this stadium, I guess to get as close to heaven as possible, I don't know, that the reason it had rained was because of racism in the stadium. My dad was wise enough to say, boys, get up, we're out of here. It got old and Attendance at Promise Keepers rallies plummeted. Why was that? Because Promise Keepers was basically trying to follow the model of unbelievers and and have rallies in which white men had to apologize to men of color. What was this? This was an early Christianized version of critical race theory at work. And the sixth fatal flaw, and this was the worst one of all, the other failure of Promise Keepers is that the entire premise was that spiritual maturity is based on man-centered efforts that I make, that I exert, that I will put forward. It's my work, it's my will, it's my determination. And those aren't inherently bad things. We need determination, we need work. But they were devoid of one thing, sound biblical instruction in the whole counsel of God. They had preaching, but it was usually kind of rah-rah hype and emotion and personal determination preaching. And I have to wonder what could have happened had stadiums filled with 50,000 men if they had heard the depths of the riches of the gospel and of the true glory of God explained and exposited and expounded. Today, Promise Keepers is still going, but they're a fraction of what they used to be. They once had a $120 million a year budget. Now they're down to $2 million with a few employees from the 400 they used to have. And you say, well, that's church history. Same thing's happening here in Kern County today. Not with Promise Keepers. It's a microwaved, uh, rebaked version of Promise Keepers. It's just reheated, but it's a men's movement happening Based in emotionalism, steeped in charismatic false doctrine, it denigrates and ignores the true biblical gospel. And by the way, it teaches men that they don't need the local church, and they're using the local church to fill their meetings. So it's vital. Now, I bring all this up because as I describe promise keepers, some of you might be saying, that actually sounds pretty good. I'd love to be in a stadium with 50,000 men. And isn't that what we're doing here? 
well, Lord willing, this isn't even in the same universe. What we're going to do is elevate Scripture, elevate God, elevate Christ, elevate the biblical gospel, elevate the church. And any parachurch organization outside the church that tries to replace the church, they're out of line. They are completely and utterly out of the will of God. And so what are we supposed to do as men? I mean, we enjoy having fun. We enjoy uh, a little bit of uh, raucous talk and behavior and, and, and hanging out together. We do enjoy that, but that can't be the basis for discipleship. It has to be content. So what are we supposed to do? Well, I want to answer that question by having us look at what we've adopted as the theme verse for Watchman Men's Ministry at Grace Bible Church, and that is uh, 1 Corinthians sixteen thirteen. But I want to have you turn first to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 just a, a little bit of background here, because I think the Corinthian church gets a, a bad rap sometimes, and we just want to be honest about the church, not negative or positive, uh, without just a, a true evaluation. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and it's a church that he loves. He cherishes these people. It's a church that he planted. Acts chapter 18 tells us this. And it's an entire church made up of not one single person who grew up in the Christian faith. And so that brings some problems. They have issues. They have weaknesses. They all have baggage, every one of them. But Paul still expresses his love for them. And I want to just read these opening verses to you so you can hear his heart. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus so that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now you can tell, by the way, what, what is the focus of Paul? Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Very Christocentric book. This is a church that Paul is honoring. This is a church that Paul is loving. This is a church that Paul is also concerned for. But they don't have the luxury in that church of being well populated by many mature believers to help sustain the less mature. For example, in the church at Corinth, if you had a men's meeting like this and you said all the men have been walking with Christ for decades and decades, uh, stand up so you can help the other guys. Nobody would stand up and the, the shepherds would go, oh, no, I got to do all this myself, which is the situation they were in. Now, there's a, a very important feature of this letter, which is going to be apparent later. And I want to just kind of plant this in your mind, then we'll come back to it. And that is that the basic structure of this letter is unique to all the letters in the New Testament because a lot of the letter is a Q&A with Pastor Paul. Three men in the church came to Paul while he was in Ephesus. Chapter 16, verse 17 records that Paul was overjoyed that these men named uh, Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus 
They came as representatives of the church at Corinth, and it's reasonable to assume that these were some of the leading men, maybe even elders in the church. From 1 Corinthians 16, 15, we know that Stephanus and his family were the very first new believers in Corinth. They were the, the founding family of this church, and they immediately threw themselves into serving the new and growing church. But here's where the structure of the book comes in, because we know that Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus came to Paul with two missions. One that the whole church knew about, and another one that the whole church most likely did not know about. The mission that the church knew about was that they were bringing Paul a list of theological and Christian living questions, which he answers in chapters 7 through 16. That's the pastoral Q&A part. But the mission that the church might not have been so aware of is the content of chapters 1 through 6, which is basically Paul's answer to the concerns and the weaknesses that these three men brought to him. Or put it this way, uh, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus are blowing the whistle on some ugly things. They're tattletaling big time. Paul, as long as we got you here and we're in Ephesus, uh, we're far away from Corinth, we just got to tell you what's actually happening. So keep that structure in your mind because we'll come back to it. But now we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians 16, 13. So you can go to the end of the book, and we'll just look at this, this one verse. We'll actually tack on verse 14 briefly. Paul is now all the way in the concluding section of the letter and was as very common in many of his letters. He gives some final, very short, just, just bullet point staccato commands in verses 13 and 14. Uh, we'll read both verses, but we'll spend most of our time on verse 13. And in this verse, we get some wonderful, terrific guidance saturated in the truth of Scripture about what men who follow Christ are supposed to do. So here's verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. I I don't know about you, but as a man, it's kind of a relief to have just a, a few words to deal with. It's just, you're not dealing with paragraphs, you're dealing with phrases. So what I'm going to do is do two things. First of all, I'm going to focus primarily on the four commands in verse 13. I'm going to take a little liberty, and we're going to do them slightly out of order. But the second is I'm going to give you an alternative label for each of these commands, an easy-to-remember label. And this is, we'll have a total of eight words that you have to remember this morning. That's easy. So the first command here. Paul says to be watchful, and we'll give this another label. We'll call this look up. Look up. I need to do just a little grammar here. Be watchful is a present active imperative verb. What does that mean? The present part means that you're doing it now, and that you should be in a continual state of obedience. It's active. It means it's something that you're doing, not something that's getting done to you. Others can't be spiritually watchful for you. It doesn't say, be around people who are spiritually watchful. It says, you be watchful. And it's an imperative. That's the strongest verb form in Greek of insistence. It's a command. It's the strongest form of urging in Greek. And so, be watchful has the idea here of standing guard, of being spiritually alert. That's why we've named the men's ministry Watchmen Men's Ministry. It's a, it's a determined effort at spiritual wakefulness. So what does this mean to be watchful? Let me just tell you what the New Testament says. I'll give you six examples. There's more than this, but six examples of what it means to be watchful. 
The first example is watch for Christ's return. You watch for Christ's return. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 42, Therefore, stay awake. Same Greek verb. Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. What does that mean? It means living every day as if tomorrow you will be giving an account to the Lord. When the Lord asks you, how did you spend your life? That tomorrow is the day. Be watchful. Stay awake. The second example of watchfulness from the New Testament, you watch your sinful heart. You watch your own sinful heart. Jesus told the disciples waiting for him in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, 41, watch, same verb, and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. Let me ask you this. If somebody asks you to, could you rattle off in 15 seconds your spiritual weaknesses? That's what being watchful is. You know what they are. You're aware of them. You're keeping an eye on them every single day. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a roach in your house that you know you've got to stomp on every day, and you're watching for it. There's a third example of being watchful. Watch for theological drift. Watch for theological drift. Paul told the elders of the church of Ephesus in Acts 20, 31, Therefore, be alert. Same verb. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. In other words, he says, remember what you've been taught. Why did he tell them to remember? Well, chillingly, he makes a prediction. He says in Acts 20, 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And listen to this. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Six years later, Paul has to send Timothy to Ephesus to clean house because some of the elders went bad. Per his prediction, watch for theological drift. Here's a fourth example Watch by being in prayer. You watch by being in prayer. A prayerless man who's a believer in Christ is like driving with your eyes closed. Something bad is going to happen. Paul exhorted the Colossians in Colossians 4 to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful, same verb, in it with thanksgiving. That watchful prayer is steadfast prayer. It's, it's thankful prayer. Those are some pretty great spiritual handrails to hold on to. Continual prayer and prayer filled with gratitude. And you hang on to those. This is a fifth example of being watchful. You watch for Satan's schemes. You watch for Satan's schemes. Peter told the, the scattered Jewish Christians around the world in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful, same verb, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Question. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to believers. Satan cannot devour you in the sense of taking your salvation away, but he is active, and you have a responsibility to be spiritually discerning so as to not be deceived. And so how do you avoid that? Well, you soak your lives in volumes of truth because that's the only weapon against that sort of deception. Now, I'll give you one more example of being watchful from the New Testament. Watch for a hollow church. Watch for a hollow church. Jesus rebuked the church at Sardis in Revelation 3. He said to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. That's hollow. What does he tell him to do? Wake up. Same verb. 
Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. There's the theme again. Remember what you've been taught. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. What's the solution for a hollow church? Truth and the gospel and discipleship. Now, at this time, Grace Bible Church does not suffer from being a hollow church, but there are hollow people here. There are hollow men and women who are outwardly following Christ, either as false believers or are are malnourished because they, they won't take in the word of God and they're languishing, trying to live a double life. So what do we do? You help them. You come alongside them. And, you, and, and with men, it's really easy. Uh, you can come to church in your own car or I can come pick you up. Which one would you like? Very simple. So what does it mean to be watchful? From the New Testament, we could summarize it. It means guarding against in, ignoring the coming of Christ. It means watching your own sinful heart. It means watching for theological drift, being watchful in prayer, watching for Satan's schemes by being saturated in the truth, and watching for a hollow church. So our first admonition is to look up. Who are the men that God told Gideon to choose in the book of Judges? The men who were looking up. Second admonition, we'll label this one, stand up. Look up and then stand up. Paul says, be watchful, then stand firm in the faith. Now, just like be watchful, this is also a present active imperative. It's something that you should be doing now because it's a command. This is not speaking of standing firm by having faith in God's daily workings in your life. That's not what he's talking about here. That's good, but that's the wrong application from, the, from this text. He says to stand firm in the faith, the content of what we believe, specifically the biblical gospel. We stand firm in that. Paul uses a similar urging to stand firm in Ephesians 6.15 when he's presenting the spiritual armor of God. He urges us to have, quote, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. He's referring to a Roman soldier's armor, and he's referring to the shoes that are embedded with bits of metal that act like cleats, is what we would say, where the soldier could grip the ground and fight for the ground that he's responsible for. Now, you might say, well, I'm not a pastor. It's not my responsibility to stand firm in the faith. The pastors do that for me. We said this last Sunday. I think it's very important that we remember that 1 Timothy 3.15 does not say the pastors are the pillar and buttress of the truth. It says the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. That's you. So what does this imply for you? To stand up, to stand firm in the faith. Well, it implies a learner's heart. It implies a teachable spirit that yearns for biblical truth. That, that literally is the meaning of the Greek word disciple. It's a learner. The church in which Satan grows in strength is the church that begins to devalue learning, that devalues the study of the word of God, that devalues the preached word. And how Satan loves to lull us as men to sleep with work and with marriage and with kids and our mortgage and anything else that he can do to get us to slack off on being learners. To say, well, I'll learn next year. I'll learn the year after. Here's the situation. In one month, 
thugs are going to launch an attack on your house and on your family. And they're killers and they're fierce. But someone delivers to you a book. And that book tells you all of the tactics of this enemy, all the things they've ever done, all their weapons, how many of them there are, and gives many examples of how to defeat this enemy. They're coming in 30 days. What are you going to do with that book? I know what you're going to do. You're going to devour it. And you're going to read it. You're going to bookmark it. You're going to be obsessed with it so that you can be prepared. So here's the question. And I love preaching to men because I don't have to pull any punches. Are you here at Grace Bible Church so that you can hear things that you already agree with, but once you hear something you disagree with, you're going to set your jaw and harden your heart? Or are you here to soak in truth, fully knowing and expecting and preparing to have your your theological ground at times eroded where you've learned error and have it bolstered where you need shoring up? Can I put it this way? Sometimes in your hearts and minds, demolition has to happen before construction can begin. It has to. And so it's your duty as men of God to take the time to be saturated in truth, to know and grasp the doctrines of grace. Great doctrines, such as the doctrine of grace itself. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The doctrine of election, the Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The doctrine of the atonement, that 1 Peter 3.18 says that for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The doctrine of divine calling, that Romans 8.28 tells us we are those who are called according to his purpose. The doctrine of conversion, that Jesus preached in Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. Change your mind about your sin. Convert. The doctrine of regeneration, Jesus said in John 3, 3, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The doctrine of union with Christ, in Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The doctrine of justification, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The doctrine of sanctification in its three parts, positional sanctification. The Hebrews 10.1 says we've been set apart by God once for all, it's done. Progressive sanctification, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another and perfected sanctification. 1 John 3.2 says when we see Christ, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. How about the doctrine of perseverance and preservation? 1 Peter 1.5, by God's power, you're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And how about the doctrine of glorification where everything is leading? Romans 8.30 says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Never stop learning. Never stop treasuring truth. Let me tell you the story of two men. Man number one comes in and starts in the back of the church because he's scared to death and he feels like he's drinking through a fire hose. And he comes in here and saying, saying, I thought I was going to hear a nice story. Instead, you shoot me full of Bible verses like with a machine gun. And over time, he moves up closer. And then he brings not only his Bible, but he brings a notebook. And then he brings a bigger notebook because he filled that one up last week. The other man starts in the front and thinks he knows a lot. 
And the minute he begins to hear things that don't agree with the, the minimalist and shallow theology he learned 30 years ago, he begins to move back farther. And he brings no notes. And his hands go from, from writing down truth to crossing and waiting to catch the pastor in something that he disagrees with. I've been a pastor for 25 years. I've seen those two men thousands of times in my own heart. They start back there and move up, or they start up here and move back. Now, I know on Sunday you'll go, oh, no, where am I sitting? It's a heart issue. It's an illustration only. But what am I saying? Never stop treasuring truth. Ever. So you need to look up and you need to stand up. Now you might be asking how to stand up. The third admonition answers that. And this is where we're going to go out of order here. We'll call this one show up. Show up. At the end of verse 13, Paul says, be strong. To be strong. Now, We have to make another important grammatical note. Remember the first two commands we said are present active imperatives. Something you should be doing now actively yourself because it's commanded. But this Greek verb, be strong, is actually a very rare type of verb. It's a present passive imperative. What does that mean? It means you could actually translate this rather than be strong, you could translate it be strengthened. Be strengthened. The passive part means that it's not something you're doing yourself, but it's, a, it's an imperative. It's a command. How can, I, how can I be commanded to do something I'm not doing? Here's what Paul is talking about. And this is so the, the beauty of the precision of the Greek language. The strength of the Christian man is not found in generating emotion. The strength of the Christian man is not found in making promises that you will break 10,000 times. The strength of the Christian man is not found in an inner determination by your own power. It's not found by going to the top of a mountain with a bunch of men, grunting a lot, anointing each other with oil, and getting rubber bracelets to prove I'm a man of God. The strength of the Christian man is found in his weakness and in his dependence on the Lord, in his brokenness by God. That's the only source of your strength. The Apostle Paul was beset by a wicked man, likely in the church, making Paul's life miserable, a false teacher that he called a messenger of Satan. And Paul begged God to help him. Three times he begged God, and God said no. Why did God say no? Listen. Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, that's the false teacher, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So then how could we interpret Paul's call to passively be strengthened? That fully knowing that your only spiritual power is found in your other weakness, in your other humility, in your other dependence, your other uh, complete constant connection to the Lord What do we mean by passively being strengthened to show up? Very simply, put yourself in the pathway of that which will strengthen you. 
Put yourself in the path. Put yourself on the path of daily prayer. Put yourself on the path of time in the word every way you can think of. If you have to, what do I mean by this? Put your Bible in front of the toilet so that you trip over it on the way to the bathroom. That's putting strength in your path. Put yourself in the path of the church. Be in a small group where the small group leader is going to call you when you miss two of them and say, hey, we missed you. Be serving in two or three ministries since they don't all happen at once. Resolve to be at every first watch men's breakfast from here on out. Let me put it this way. If you're dying of thirst spiritually, you still have the strength to roll yourself under the life-giving waters of the word of God. Put yourself in the path of spiritual strength. And so that's my admonition. Show up. Live your life in the church. I've told this illustration many times before. I will continue to tell it. Odds are it'll be the last illustration I ever give on this earth. How many times have I spoken to people in my office or after church and they just say, I just feel spiritually weak and I'm dry and I'm just, I, I just am I'm out of it. And my walk with the Lord, he feels like a th- thousand miles away. My prayers are hitting the, the ceiling and, and the word just isn't that, that, that enamoring to me anymore. And I begin to ask questions. Well, when was the last time you actually read the Bible? When was the last time you actually prayed? Are you in a small group? No. You come to, a, a, to any other ministry? No. How often are you in church? Uh, once or twice a month? It's the same thing every time. I'm dry. I'm parched. I'm spiritually just shriveled. I only have one thing to say to them. Then show up. Show up. Roll your thirsting soul forward until your open mouth is under the water of the word. That brings us to our fourth admonition. For Paul says, act like men. That was all an introduction to get to this part. Now, before I give you our label for this last admonition, I can't give you the label yet because we have to clear up a misunderstanding. Act like men, definitely a masculine verb. And unlike the other three verbs in this verse, this one is what's called a middle verb. You're doing something that impacts yourself. You're doing something that changes yourself. This admonition to act like men is often interpreted as as bravery, to act like you have courage. And I think that's a very reasonable application. But in the context of 1 Corinthians as a whole, that's not the primary interpretation. Some English translations even translate this. Instead of saying act like men, it translates uh, be courageous or be brave. That's not a translation. That's an interpretation. That's the metaphorical understanding. And we all get that. The figurative understanding of being manly. That's kind of the usual default interpretation. And again, that's a reasonable application to be manly, to have courage. But that's not the best interpretation of the actual meaning. We have another difficulty here. It's difficult to make the case that this verse suddenly is written only to the male gender. The whole letter is to the church. How can a woman apply, act like men? Which is likely why many translations soften the masculinity of it by by translating it with the act of courage, the idea of bravery. But I'm going to assert that what Paul is speaking of here is not act like men as opposed to acting in cowardice or acting in fear. And it's not act like men as opposed to acting like women. 
It's not, Paul's not saying stop being so girly. What is he saying? Listen, he's saying act like spiritual men, not like spiritual children. Don't be a child. This isn't so much a contrast with feminine or fearful qualities as it's a contrast with childish qualities. Now, how do we come to that conclusion? Well, the direct context of the whole book bears this viewpoint out. We're going to work our way backwards just a little bit. Look with me at chapter 14, verse 20. Chapter 14, verse 20. We'll keep going back from here. Chapter 14, verse 20. Brothers, do not be, what's the next word? Children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Go back one chapter, chapter 13, verse 11. Chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a what? Child. I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Go all the way back to chapter 3, verse 1. We'll pop back a few chapters here. Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So what shall we label this final admonition to act like men? How about we label it grow up? Grow up. I contemplated man up, but that's not quite the accurate term here. It's grow up. Now, remember, we put this away in our brains a while ago. I told you that Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus came to Paul in Ephesus, and they not only brought questions from the church that the church knew about, but they also came bringing a bad report card, kind of running to the Apostle Paul to tattletale and to get some help. And we said that the questions are answered in chapters 7 through 16. The tattletale part is answered in chapters 1 through 6. How the church was acting childishly, not being spiritually mature. I'd like to show you seven ways they were acting childishly. This is the part where we take the sledgehammer on the little nail. And what they're doing here is by nature negative. I don't want to turn them into positive admonitions because we've already done that. The solution to spiritual childishness, to boyishness, is the first three admonitions. To look up, to stand up, to show up. And by doing those, you will grow up. But, but I want to highlight seven ways many in the church were acting childish spiritually. Let's start back in chapter 1. We're going to walk through parts of every chapter here. Chapter 1, the first way they were acting childishly spiritually in the church was a willingness to, to hurt the church. A willingness to hurt the church. There were divisions in the church over petty loyalties. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10 I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Some say, I follow Paul. Probably because, well, he's an apostle and he planted our church. Others say, I follow Apollos because he's a great preacher. Or self-righteously, I don't listen to either Paul or Apollos. I just follow Jesus. And that sounds righteous, but what that really is is a, a rejection of the men that Jesus has raised up to teach them. I've experienced this as a pastor numbers of times when somebody gets so in, 
enamored with a certain preacher or a certain author that the church member really isn't learning from the preached word. Every Sunday is just an exercise in comparing my sermon to the book they read or the, or the, the pastor that they are following with over-loyalty. What does that do? It stops growth because you stop being a, 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 a learner and you start just being a critic. It's very possible that Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus were experiencing these splits and loyalties in the membership and they were distressed enough to tell Paul about it. So who should the church members in Corinth, who should they be loyal to and follow and obey? Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And instead, the members were polarized into these false loyalties. Every single action you take, every single word you speak to the church, to fellow members, to those outside the church, should be filtered through this very simple question. How is this bringing glory to Christ and unity to the church? Very simple question. At worst, someone with a willingness to hurt the church may ultimately be demonstrating a lack of genuine salvation. And we know this because rebuke and correction goes nowhere with them. At best, a willingness to hurt the church should be a signal that your own thinking about the church is filtered through your own desires, your own wants, your own preferences, rather than the kingdom concern for the church as a whole. This is the sign of a spiritual child, not a spiritual man. There's a second way many in the church were acting childishly spiritually, an arrogant belief in total free will. An arrogant belief in total free will. Now, some of you may be going, "Uh uh-oh, you're getting ready to step on my toes. Not like what Paul does. He smashes them. Paul now begins to confront arrogance in the spiritually childish. Chapter 1, verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That's a really nice way in Greek of saying that most of you guys are idiots. That's basically what he's saying. What he's pointing out is that they're not Christians because of anything elegant, noble, or delightful inherent to them. And now Paul gives a a poetic triple statement to demonstrate what kind of people God actually saves. Listen to this triple statement, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Two major observations from these two verses. First of all, Look at the descriptions of people God saves. They're foolish, they're weak, they're low, they're despised. They're things that are, the the description is, what, what is the basis of who you are? You are not. And second observation, eklegomai, God chose, God chose, God chose. Three times. In fact, simply by reading these verses with different emphases, you can catch Paul's point. You could read it emphasizing the descriptions of the people that God saves, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Or you could read it emphasizing the initiator of salvation. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. 
Now, why would we label this way of acting spiritually childish as arrogant? An arrogant belief in human free will. Because Paul says it's arrogant. Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. By default, if one believes that they chose God of their own free will, Paul says this is boasting in the presence of God. Now, since the 16th century or so, we have labeled belief in total human free will and salvation as Arminianism. Paul has a different label, boasting in the presence of God. And it's spiritual boyishness. It's childish. The third way many in the church were acting childish, acting spiritually immature, a desire for entertaining pastors. A desire for entertaining pastors. Chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. In verse 1, I did not come to you proclaiming testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. It's not saying that Paul was a terrible preacher or that he couldn't hold an audience. Frankly, Acts 20 records an audience in Troas so enamored by Paul's preaching that they stayed all night long to listen to him. And verse 3 is not saying that Paul was terrified to speak to him. What what he's saying is that that he didn't come in his own power. He came only in the power of the gospel and the preaching Christ. Now, why is he having to defend this? Because Corinth was a great center for a a common practice in the Greco-Roman world. He was up against a class of entertainers called sophists. These sophists were, uh, it's from the Greek word for wisdom, they were professional public entertainers. They were speakers. They engaged in debates. They, They did poetry. They did logical arguments. But their primary concern was entertaining the crowd, holding the crowd. But some in the Corinthian church were putting down Paul because he wasn't entertaining, like the sophists. He, he wasn't using human logic. Rather, he was appealing to the word of God. He wasn't enamoring them by his glorious personality or his youthfulness or his good looks. But Paul defends his focus on Christ, on the gospel, on the word of God, and he gives his reasoning in verse 5 of chapter 2, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know what I love about being a pastor? It's one of the few professions, if you can call it that, where the older The grayer, the uglier, the more beat up by life you are, the more you have to say and the more effective you are. Do you know what it's like to go get your hair cut and have the barber use air quotes when he says, how do you want your hair done today? (laughs) You know what that tells me? It means I'm wiser than I used to be. Paul warned Timothy about church members who want to be entertained, to hear things that make them feel good instead of hearing truth. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. 
You know what the sign of a healthy church is? Is that the church keeps coming back when they hear things that shatters their previously held notions of error. What do grown-ups in the Lord, men of God, desire? Truth in heavy and large doses. So fourth way many in the church were acting childishly, spiritually. We'll call this one an obsession with the trivial. An obsession with the trivial. Look at me at chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, that means the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The foundation he's speaking of here is Jesus Christ, verse 11. And we're called to build on that foundation with things that last, things that are eternal. The gold, the silver, the precious stones. Ephesians 5.16 says, You are to be making the best use of the time because the days are evil. You know when you go and get gas and you use your debit card or your credit card at the pump and it asks you if you want a receipt? And you take, I've timed it, five seconds to either push yes or no. Over the course of 10 years, you will waste three hours of your life doing that. This is a question for you to answer in your own heart. I can't answer it for you. You have to do it. What are the distractions of life that keep you from those things that are eternal? What's distracting you? I'm amazed at 40-year-old men that are still addicted to video games. What are the eternal things? Eternal things like loving your wife and spending significant time with her. Will you love her today like today is the last day you get with her? Eternal things like pouring into your children, not just providing for them, but but praying for them and teaching them and molding them, correcting them, training them. Eternal things like being an outstanding employee or an outstanding employer, one that goes above and beyond because that's pleasing to Christ, it's honoring to the Lord. Eternal things like loving and serving in the church with a lifetime commitment. I've been a pastor long enough now to watch distractions eat the lives of men. Eat their effectiveness in the eternal works of of sometimes once faithful men. I'll just give you a short list of distractions I've personally seen derail a man's life. These are not necessarily inherently sinful things. They're just things that eat time and commitment. They're not eternal Fearfulness of not making enough money. So he's constantly working, constantly ignoring his family, constantly making excuses. Well, I can't serve in the church until I get my business going. You know how many times I've heard that? You know how many times I've heard, my business is now going well, I'm ready to serve? Zero. Because it's not based in money, it's based in fear. How about this one? Golf or other hobbies that become addictive because you neglect weightier things for those. Nothing wrong with playing a round of golf. I play every single year once, whether I need to or not. Video games, self-entertainment, that can become addictive. Working on a hobby car, these are things that that I've personally seen derail men. Building a home. I had to endure an elder years ago who basically shirked all his duties for 18 months to build a house because he wanted to do some of the work himself. Utterly irresponsible. Vacations and getting away. 
that too can become addictive. I've seen people with little or no stress in their lives say that they have to get away every six weeks. What are you getting away from? How about accomplish something and then get away from that if you have to? So my challenge to you is if you keep any sort of calendar, today is January 1st. I challenge you to look over the past year at all the times you were too busy for your family, too busy to be in the church on the Lord's Day, and find out what was the reason and was it worth it. And conversely, what are you doing that's eternal? This is a very short list. What's eternal? Well, it's defined as obeying the commands of the New Testament and doing them sacrificially. Uh, for men, I can boil this down very easily. What's eternal in your life? Provide for your family and be an excellent worker. Love and cherish your wife. Raise your children in the admonition of the Lord. Use your spiritual gifts in the church with a heavy heart for the lost and an eager heart for the saved. Know and learn and grow in the word of God and then recreate so that you can do those other five things more faithfully and with a renewed heart and mind and body. I don't know if you caught this in verse 15. Paul's warning, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you know what he's saying? It is possible to be a Christian who leads an ultimately worthless life. It's the fifth way many in the church were acting childishly, spiritually. They had a low view of the church. They had a low view of the church. Chapter 3, verse 16. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Verses 16 and 17, the pronouns you are plural, speaking of the church as a whole. Do you not know that you as a church are God's temple? Verses 18 and 19, it betrays a low view of the church when you attempt to mix worldly philosophy with the wisdom of God. There were other ways they had a low view of the church. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The church as a whole is tolerating unrepentant sexual immorality. And Paul challenges the leadership to purify the church. At the very end of the chapter, verse 13 God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. There's a sixth way that many in the church were acting childish and spirit, spiritually speaking, a stiff-necked pride. A stiff-necked pride. Chapter 6, verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? In other words, believers in the church at Corinth were suing one another in civil court. Dealing with disputes and disagreements by taking two believers to go have an unbeliever decide what's right. They weren't taking the option, by the way, of simply suffering humbly, even within relationships in the church. We don't talk about this option very much, but Paul gives this option Look at verse 7 of chapter 6. 
to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? In other words, rather than smear the name of Christ through the papers, through the public, I will just suffer. Because Christ's name is more important than mine. Who cares about my name? That's a prideful attitude that would do that. And that sort of prideful attitude is very revealing. This is this is the guy who comes to church not to learn, not to be corrected, not to be humbled, but to judge the preached word, to judge theology from a position of ignorance and pride. I don't think I've ever actually said this out loud, but I confess to you I've thought it sometimes when somebody comes and says, you know, I disagree wholeheartedly with something you just said, which is totally fine. I'm fine with that. But what comes to my mind on occasion that I hope I haven't said out loud is, wow, after your five seconds of thought, that's quite a great conclusion there. You know, I spent 20 hours researching this. I spent 25 years learning the word of God. And from the time it took you to walk from there to here, you figured it out. That's amazing. I've never said it, but I have thought it, I confess. <laughs> On occasion, I will send the guy to, okay, go do a research paper. Ten pages, ten sources, and you show me your position. You know how many people have ever taken me up on that? Zero. Because that takes work, that takes effort, that takes study. Let me give you one way, and this might hit a little close to home. A seventh way, many in the church were acting childishly, spiritually. A life of pursuing pleasure. A life of pursuing pleasure. Chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, for me but I will not be dominated by anything. This isn't an endorsement of antinomianism, a faith without a law of any kind. Paul's simply saying that not everything that isn't directly called sinful isn't necessarily good or helpful either. But the main point I want you to get is that which dominates you. Today we use a word that I'm not a, I'm not a fan of, and that's the word addiction. Because that has a connotation that I'm a victim of something outside myself instead of my own sin. I I don't need to make a list of things that dominate you and dominate men because we all know what they are. You live in this world and you know your own list. And believe it or not, to the church at Corinth, Paul has to tell some of the men to stop going to prostitutes in the name of pursuing their own pleasure in verses 15 and 16. And so he says in verse 18 of chapter 6, flee from sexual immorality. He says, flee. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now he is speaking specifically about the the physical body. He's very careful not to step into legalism. But at the same time, we could ask a very easy question of ourselves. What dominates me? What enslaves me? And what's Paul's answer to whatever dominates me? Verse 18, run. Flee from it. Get away from it. Let me get this last point to where we all live, and that's our tendency to think in terms of what am I getting out of ABC or XYZ? What's in it for me? Obviously, there's some level of getting something out of things. You rightly expect to be fed the word of God in the church. You rightly expect to get companionship from your wife. You rightly expect to get a paycheck from your work. But let me ask you this. What happens when your expectations aren't met? What happens then? What if you sink into the the degradation of basing your joy and happiness on whether or not the things and people around you are pleasing you? Now 
The life-dominating sin is still self-pleasure, still self-gratification. It comes in a thousand different flavors. It's been said that in America, men are amusing themselves to death. Not taking the time to work at things that are eternal. Well, from the context of 1 Corinthians, I hope I've convinced you to act like men. It means stop being spiritual children. I have one last question. How do you gauge that you're obeying these admonitions? How do you gauge this? How do you measure this? To look up, to stand up, to show up, to grow up. What's the litmus test for everything? What's the test that denies self and elevates Christ and others? Very simply, chapter 16, verse 14, let all that you do be done in what? Love. That's the test. That tests all four of them. Let all that you do be done in love. That evaluation alone will put all the other exhortations in line. We do need one another. We do need men. We need to stand together. And it needs to be not the not just rah-rah emotion, but it needs to be what are you learning? What are you doing for Christ? How's your marriage? How are your kids? How's your time in the word? How's your time in prayer? Haven't seen you in church. Where are you? When can I come pick you up? Uh, can I slash your tires if you don't come to church next time? Well, we're going to keep growing in the truth together this spring, this first year of our revamped, revamped Watchman's, uh, Watchman Men's Ministry. I've committed to teach the majority of our times together at the First Watch Monthly Breakfast. And so my preaching schedule for the spring and then a little later in the fall February is the Wide Awake Conference. In March, I'm going to preach on 2 Timothy 2.2, the anatomy of making disciples. In April, I'm going to preach Proverbs 27.17, iron sharpening iron. And then a little later on in the year, I'm going to preach 1 Chronicles 12.32. This is uh, the men of Issachar. They are the ultimate examples of manly spirituality in the Old Testament. And we'll show you them, and we'll do a couple of others as well. But I've committed to take... Uh, most of these this year, I just said I, I want to be the guy up here most of the time. But we're also going to have some of our other pastors up here as well um, to train you and to teach you. So, all right, you okay? Took the sledgehammer, left some dents. I want you walking away with that nail deeply embedded where you can't ever get it out. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time we have had in the Word of God. Lord, let the truths etch themselves into our minds. Every man here, whether he's walked with the Lord for a month, for a decade, or for a lifetime, can renew our commitment to walking with the Lord in the manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Let us do that to the glory of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.